You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Today's reading is entitled, You Reading This, Be Ready, by William Stafford. Or you listening to this, be ready. How about that? Starting here, what do you want to remember? How sunlight creeps along a shining floor? What scent of old wood hovers? That softened sound from outside fills the air. Will you ever bring a better gift for the world than the breathing respect that you carry wherever you go right now? Are you waiting for time to show you some better thoughts? When you turn around, starting here, lift this new glimpse that you found. Carry into evening all that you want from this day. This interval you spent reading or hearing this, keep it for life. What can anyone give you greater than now, starting here, right in this room when you turn around? That was You Reading This, Be Ready by William Stafford. It is said, once there was a 19-year-old man who had everything. He had wealth, he had respect and admiration from thousands of people. He wanted for nothing, enjoying his life with his new wife and their newborn son. Life was good. And then he decided to leave it all behind one night. He didn't leave a note. He didn't say farewell to his wife and son, no final tuck in after story time, no kiss on the forehead of his sleeping wife. As this man was incredibly wealthy, he lived in a palace. He was royalty, you see, the heir to the throne. He did not merely walk out of the palace that night through the doors. He had to sneak past the servants and guards. He didn't want any questions and to have his father and mother, the king and queen, woken up to stop him. He left the palace shaved his head, exchanged his fine clothing for a simple robe and carried a beggar's bowl with him. For the next six years, this man wandered the kingdoms around him. People suspected who he was, but they couldn't quite be sure. He tried the ascetic lifestyle, starving himself, denying himself as many worldly pleasures as possible. He tried intense intense chanting, chanting all day, Intense praying, praying all day, ecstatic states and downtrodden states of mind. He availed himself of spiritual teachers, yogis, gurus, philosophers, scientists, mathematicians, astronomers and astrologers, clan and village elders. Anyone who had something to teach him about the meaning of life, he was there. Nothing worked. He was dejected. He felt his quest was a near failure, but he didn't give up. 
knew he was on to something, close to something. He could feel it. He was almost there with some or all of those other practices, just out of reach. So he found a tree that he liked, an ancient fig tree. And he resolved to sit there under that fig tree and meditate until he figured it out. The meaning of life, the meaning of everything. Rumor has it, and as legends go, he sat in meditation so peacefully and still under that fig tree that there were cobwebs on his eyebrows, a bird's nest on his head, and reeds like bamboo growing through the meditation mat. He stayed under that tree for six years, ceaselessly meditating. It was nearly 12 years since he left everything behind, and he was 30 years old now. On the morning of the eighth day of the 12th month, the morning star, the planet Venus, started rising. The man saw it deep in meditation and found the answer, the answer to everything. He proclaimed, I and all beings on earth together attain enlightenment at the same time. That man, of course, was Siddhartha Gautama, crown prince of the Shakya clan of northern India. Shakya was a very small kingdom near the border of today's India and Nepal along the Himalayan mountains. After proclaiming this awakening, this finding of the answer, the man who would become known as the Buddha, the awakened one, would spend the remaining 49 years of his life constantly teaching, never in seclusion. His wife and son would become disciples of his, and he never increased his possessions beyond a simple robe and a beggar's bowl. He would teach at over 360 assemblies containing thousands of people across the kingdoms and countryside. And when his life was coming to a close, he transmitted what is called the treasury of the eye of truth, or really the answer to everything, to his most beloved disciple, Kashyapa. The ceremony was simple. Siddhartha held up a flower before his disciples, seated before him, twirled it in his fingers, and Kashyapa smiled. The transmission of truth was completed in that moment. So that transmission continues today between teacher and student, an unbroken line that reaches back nearly 2,600 years. That's older than Jesus of Nazareth by six centuries, and likely older than the first compiled Torah, Long before the Roman Empire, long before visitors and colonists from Europe landed here, roughly 1,000 years before the Vikings even sailed along our eastern shores, the thriving Adena and Hopewell peoples were on this land with trade networks, vast trade networks across the continent. I don't make an appeal to history because I think the story of the Buddha is better because it's older, not at all. But when you think of time, when you think of the foundations of our own civilization, there was a fully formed and intricate religious and philosophical system in Buddhism long before Jesus ever said a word. It's humbling, and humbling still to think of how much we don't know about our history. 
Now, I like the story of the Buddha, despite the clear challenges as someone in 2023 seeing him leave everything behind, including his family. There's a part of me that really resonates with it. As a millennial, I know my generation and Generation Z especially have struggled mightily with what it all means. Many of us leave behind, quote, unquote, everything often our digital lives in the seek of something simpler, in the search for something simpler. So I understand the quest a little bit. And as an older millennial, our lives have been marked by next to no peace in our world since we were born. We've watched wars on television. We saw the USSR fall, the Twin Towers get destroyed on TV screens in high school, seen unjust invasions, democracies flourish and topple, and now we dwell, as do we all the unfolding climate crisis, and the faltering of the liberal international order. I don't just understand the quest, and I'm sure you don't either. You feel it. You also know it's a universal human trait. Now, before I continue, though, I feel it's important to lay this out here. It doesn't matter if the Buddha ever existed. simply doesn't. What matters are the teachings. The teaching, really like Moses or Jesus or Muhammad or even Mary Baker Eddy. A lot is said about those who, what those spiritual teachers might have meant or said. But when you peel back the layers and layers and layers of commentary, it's all quite simple. And the same is true with the Buddha. One simple teaching. As a Zen practitioner, we would sum this up this way. Just this is it. That's the teaching. Today is the third in a series on mindfulness we've had here, and many of you have asked me to say more about my own Zen practice. I've resisted it just a little bit, preferring to just throw in little bits here and there. It's hard not to when it permeates your life. But I can guarantee anything I say today about my own practice of Buddhism will leave something out. But like the famous Buddhist koan, if you meet the Buddha on the road, what do you do? Kill him. You should do that with anything I say about Zen because Zen is really about your life and the unfolding glory of the universe in every moment, every moment. Now Zen arose out of the convergence of Indian and Chinese Buddhism and Taoism. It arose out of times of great famine, upheaval, conflict, wars, empires growing and falling. And you can safely assume roughly that around the fifth century of the common era, what was then called Chan was taking shape. A great teacher named Bodhidharma traveled over the mountains into China and brought what would become Zen with him. Now the legends of Bodhidharma are pretty great. I love these legends here. It's rumored that he didn't want to fall asleep while meditating, so he tore off his eyelids and threw them to the wind. And behold, his eyelids landed and sprouted into tea. So Bodhidharma brought tea to China. He also cut off his legs so they would stop falling asleep while he was meditating. Anyone who's ever meditated before knows something about that. If you try to get all pretzeled. I won't give you all the history. There's plenty of books and debates about that. But Zen would start to form in distinct schools. The two surviving schools of today are Soto Zen, 
whose primary teaching is called shikantaza, which means just sitting. The idea that all you need to do in meditation is sit in meditation and enlightenment will eventually come. And Rinzai, which is my school of Zen, which uses koans or Zen stories in order to achieve kensho, sudden awakening. Now, there is no wrong school. They each have their own paths. They lead to the same goal. When students in each school experience awakening, they're talking about the same thing. But sometimes, like in any religion, people in each school like to throw jabs at one another about whose method is better. Soto Zen is known about having very, very specific rituals. If you don't enter the Zendo with your right foot, do it over. And Rinzai is known as being very abrupt and direct. Now, I can be a very abrupt and direct person, so it's no wonder that that one appealed to me over the other. Now, I'm going to cautiously tell you an awakening story. It's my own awakening story here. Kensho, sudden enlightenment. Let me be clear about something, though. When you talk about enlightenment, it won't enlighten you. It's a deeply personal matter. Giving you answers to Zen koans, book upon book upon book of Zen koans, what people often mistakenly call Zen riddles, will not enlighten you. Knowing anything about Zen or knowing the history of the Buddhism or the color of his shoelaces will not enlighten you. It has to be felt, deeply felt. And as someone who's been always skeptical of anything supernatural, this is as close as I get. Because it isn't supernatural. It isn't transcendent. It isn't otherworldly. It's just this. This life and this moment. So here's the story. It's really nothing special. It was a day-long Zen retreat and we were eating lunch. I was set to take Jukai later in the day. So many great names for these rituals and moments. Which means vowing to uphold Buddhist vows and live the Bodhisattva way, which... One sentence means you will vow to awaken all the beings of the world, right? Small task, right? Everything. (laughs) But as I was eating lunch, I looked out the window and saw Tibetan prayer flags waving in the wind. And a Zen story, a koan, came to mind. It goes like this. Two monks were arguing about a flag. One said, the flag is moving. No, the other one said, the wind is moving. Their teacher happened to be walking by and interjected, and he said, No, not the wind, not the flag. Mind is moving. Both monks were suddenly awakened. Was anyone just awakened? (laughs) As I watched those flags wave in the wind, their myriad colors, the branches of trees that they were tied to, the blue sky and the sun shining down, each flap of each flag gently in the wind. Then it happened like a lightning bolt, awakening, Kensho. I started laughing and I kept laughing. Some people cry and keep crying. Some people feel a warmth all over. Some lose the ability to speak when it happens. Some are just peaceful. I laughed and laughed 
and kept laughing the rest of the day. Meeting with the Roshi, the Zen teacher, every koan to test me, he threw at me, had an immediate answer. It was intimate. It was deep. And it was also nothing special at all. I look back at that story and see it as just a story. There's been other awakenings. There'll be more. Zen is a funny thing. It doesn't care much about holding on to things because there's nothing to hold on to. And in my tradition, all the stories, the koans melt into one thing. Who's heard some Zen koans before? You've read them, right? Here's a few examples, right? What's the sound of one hand clapping? Hmm. This is wrong. Um, (laughs) Does a dog have Buddha nature? No. That's the answer. Stop the sound of the distant temple bell. Stop the bell. A thousand mountains are covered with snow. Why is one peak not white? It's the answer to that. Taking the form of the bodhisattva of compassion. Give shelter to a homeless person. Show me your face before your parents were born. And the most basic koan. Who are you? You. (laughs) Who are you? Who has an answer to that? Who are you? If you have an answer, set it aside and ask yourself again. Here's a secret, though. Every Zen koan, every Zen story has the same answer. And then they don't. And Zen is like that too. Yes, no, maybe all the in-between. Now, I'm not here to sell you Zen. I'm here to tell you the power of one of the core tenets of Zen. Last week, we discussed it just a little bit. I listed up the core tenets of what's called the Zen Peacemaker's Order, which is what I'm a part of as well. Not knowing, bearing witness, and taking action from not knowing and bearing witness. And it all begins with that first one right there, not knowing. It is the most powerful teaching in Buddhism. It's the first teaching. When the Buddha saw the morning star, when he saw Venus rise, he lost all sense of self, all sense of separation. The lines between morning star and Siddhartha, fig tree and earth, morning and night, past and present melted away. He was left with now and not knowing. And when the lines of separation vanish, you can only not know. And what remains is the affirmation, just this, this eternal now is it. Just this, just this. Even that's too many words, just. When that happens, what's happening in Ukraine is right here. When that happens, the violence in Lexington, Kentucky is right here. The homeless in search of shelter, here. The loss you are experiencing, here. The loss someone you don't know, right here. The joy and beauty and glory of the universe, right here. Every breath of air, here. Every final breath that's happening to people across this world, here. The moon, the stars, the sun, the sky, the ancestors, the Buddha, Jesus, and yes, every sinner and tyrant right there. I laughed 
you might cry. You might dance. But most importantly, as Buddhist teacher Jack Cornfield would say in this book of the same name, after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> Zen and really all, all of Buddhism is not a minimization of our differences. It's an invitation to intimacy with life, your life, all of it. Thich Nhat Hanh would call it interbeing. And you would use the example of a sheet of paper. You would hold it up before his crowds to describe interbeing. You would hold up a sheet of paper and you say, in this sheet of paper, there are countless human beings' efforts. There's the trees that were used to make the paper, the soil, the worms in the soil, the birds that were on the trees, the sunlight that grew the tree, the air and the crucibles of the universe are in this piece of paper. Nothing is separate, not one bit. Everything is dependent on everything. That includes the pile of dog poop you stepped in, or the garbage, or the person you hate. Everything is connected. We Unitarian Universalists would call it the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. We love our independence and our individuality, and that's wonderful, because you are wonderful, and life is wonderful, but we are also so dependent on everything. Nothing is separate. It's so beautiful, I just want to cry <laughs> and laugh and dance and go out into this life and do something that'll awaken all living beings or at least help ease suffering in some way. The Heart Sutra, one of my favorite Buddhist scriptures and also one of the shortest, blessedly, ends with a mantra that hangs on my wall in my office and it goes like this. Gate, gate, parasam, gate, bodhisvaha. It translates to English like so. Gone, gone, everybody's gone to a distant shore. Awakening at last. Want to know a secret? A distant shore right here. Right here. Awakening at last. Right here. Or Zen priest Brad Warner would put it, Awakening, hot damn. <laughs> now, this might sound a little flip, but I don't care if anyone becomes a Buddhist. I really don't. And when I say that, I say it because I honor your path. But my deepest, most compassionate hope for everyone is that their path leads them to live authentically with no separation to let go of protecting your ideas of the self all the time, fiercely and fighting, to live openly, to greet each moment as it is, for it's the only moment. Let go of others' ideas. You have everything you need. I feel that Zen and Unitarian Universalism have a lot in common. We welcome your path, and we don't give you directions, but we'll hand you a compass, it doesn't tell you where to go, but it's there if you need it. And really, where do you have to go? Just this is it. Just this moment. Now, if you want, close your eyes for just a moment and let's, let's focus on something real quick. 
And here's a thought to bring to your heart, to your mind right now. There will never, ever be another gathering of people exactly like this moment ever again. Ever. Isn't that wondrous? You just got to experience that. Every moment is like that. Just so. Just this is it. Awakening. At last. Blessed be, dear friends. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.